0: If you would, take a Bible and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, we'll be considering Isaiah 51, verse 9 through 52, verse 12. So we have a bit of text to cover, 51, 9 through to 52, verse 12. If you're using a Bible in the pew in front of you, it's on page 612, 612, Isaiah 51, verse 9 and following. If you would rise for the reading of Scripture. Awake. Awake. Put on strength, O arm of Yahweh. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you... Who cut Rahab in pieces? Who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waves of the great deep? Who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of Yahweh shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Verse 12, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Of the son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten Yahweh, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. I am Yahweh your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth, and saying to Zion, you are my people. Wake yourself. Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of Yahweh the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs of the bull the cup of staggering, there is none to guide her among all the sons she has born. There is none to take her by the hand among all the sons she has brought up. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword. Who will comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. They are full of the wrath of Yahweh, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, your God, who pleads the cause of his people. Behold. I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering. The bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more. And I will put it into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over and you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. Awake, awake. Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you, the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says Yahweh, you are sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord Yahweh, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what have I here, declares Yahweh. Seeing that my people are taken away from nothing, their rulers wail, declares Yahweh, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful. Upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchman, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of Yahweh to Zion. Break forth into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For Yahweh has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Yahweh has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart. Depart. Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of Yahweh. For you shall not go out in haste. And you shall not go in flight, for Yahweh will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated as we pray. Father, we come before you this morning just needy. I think that oftentimes we do not realize our need of you. We do not wish to admit our own sinfulness and our own weakness. We tend to think of ourselves as righteous and as self-sufficient, and yet we heard in the testimonies today that we are sinners and that we are weak, and therefore we need a Redeemer and we need a strong God to work on our behalf So God, we have gathered here together this morning in order to acknowledge this and in order to hear from your word that it might strengthen and soothe our souls. God, would you by your spirit be at work in these moments? Would you by your spirit help me to declare these things from your word? And and would you by your spirit be at work in our hearts so that we might believe and order our lives according to your truth, the truths of your word? So God, would you help us to understand and to believe the things that you've laid out for us in your word? And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. In the previous section, Isaiah spoke of an eternal and glorious salvation. Yahweh will accomplish this by his own hand and by his own power. But if you've been with us in this book of Isaiah, and even if you haven't, it's quite easy to understand that Isaiah was aware of the impending doom for his people. And he's well aware that destruction and judgment would be experienced by Israel. And so if you just kind of put those two things together, then there is a dissonance. Isaiah understood that there were great promises of salvation for the people of God. But Isaiah also understood that destruction and judgment was in the, the near future or perhaps present experience also for the people of God. The two didn't align. And perhaps you have experienced that. You hear that God is good and loving. You read that God's great promises will be accomplished for his people, that God has great things in store for his own. And then you look at your life and you look at the world around you and it is in shambles. I think there's a sense in which Isaiah understood that. And so Isaiah cries out to God to wake up. And perhaps you (laughs) wouldn't quite word it in that way, but you too cry out from your heart to God to wake up. God, if you are loving, God, if you are able, then rise up and help us. So what we need then is that we need God to wake up from his slumber. Or is it? We're going to look at this text by answering four questions this morning. And my hope is that by asking and answering these four questions, it will provide us with a clearer perspective on who, in fact, is sleeping and therefore who, in fact, needs to wake up. Question number one Isaiah 51, verses 9 through 16. If you're taking notes, Isaiah 51, verses 9 through 16. Have you forgotten God? Have you forgotten God? Isaiah begins this section. I think you heard it. He, he cries out. Maybe it's him, maybe it's him on behalf of the people, or maybe it's the people, but I think it's, 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 it's the righteous that Isaiah represents amongst Israel, and they're crying out. Wake up, God. Arise, Yahweh. Put your strong arm to work. You led your people out from being under the thumb of Pharaoh. You redeemed Israel out of slavery in Egypt. You established them as a covenant nation. Afterwards, do it again. Help us in our misery. Run to our aid. Don't leave us the way that we are. It's a good prayer. It's informed by scripture. It appeals to the character of God. It trusts in the promises of God. And it ends on this hopeful note in verse 11. Just look with me there. That one day all sad things will come untrue. I think that's a Lewis reference. And that the people will return to a city without pain, without suffering, and without death. It's a good prayer. It's a prayer that we should all pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is a good prayer. So how does God respond to this prayer? He says to Israel and he says to the church a few things. And I think that the focus has shifted. Maybe it's Isaiah and the faithful remnant who are offering up the prayer and then God sort of addresses the entirety of the people. I think that's what's happening here. And so he says to Israel and he says to the church a few things. Number one, that the covenant relation that he has made with his people is still intact. His vows to us have not been revoked and the wedding band is still on his finger. And he responds emphatically to the prayer of his people. He sa- they say, awake, awake. And he says, I, I am he who comforts you. God, right from the outset, declares to his people that he and he alone is all the comfort and the security that the people of God of every age need Ultimately, he is all that we need. We sung of that even this morning. But here is the problem for Israel historically. At various points in their history, and it's not specific here, God's people were under threat. Foreign nations would intimidate them. Assyria had taken Israel into captivity. Babylon would do the same to Judah. The nations would conspire together, put their minds together, and they would bully the covenant nation. And so what had happened to Israel, not innocently, might I add, is that they had forgotten their God. And rather than keeping their eyes fixed on him and reverencing him and fearing his wrath, they had became terribly afraid, but not of God. They became overwhelmingly afraid of kings and of rulers. They had become consumed with the prospect of being dominated by foreign powers. In other words, they greatly feared not God, but man. At every point, at every juncture, Yahweh could have released them. He could have provided for them. He could have redeemed them. He has legions of angels at his disposal, remember. He is the maker of heaven and earth, and he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. But they had forgotten him. Now, I'm not sure what comes to your mind when you think about the great sins and the great evils that human beings can commit. I'm not sure what comes to your mind when you think of the great sins and the great evils that are present in our world. I wonder what comes to your mind. Perhaps it would be things like murder or abuse. Or even what happened over at GDHS this past Sunday with the stabbing of one student of another. Or maybe you think of a notorious bank robbery. Or some sort of scandal in a political party or doing heavy drugs. But the thing that God points out to Israel and to us is the sin of forgetfulness. Not like forgetting where we placed our wallet, but like a husband living as if he were single and saying, I forgot that I was married. Listen this morning. I'm not asking whether you can check the box on a census that you are a Christian I'm not asking with what religion you identify. I'm not even asking whether you adhere to sound doctrine. I am asking whether you live with a spiritual Alzheimer's where you forget about the living God in your day-to-day living. And this is a challenge for us. Most of us would, most of us should feel convicted by this text. That we are more concerned about what man can do to us than what God can do for us. That we are more concerned about our circumstances being pleasing to us than about our lives being pleasing to God. And with this, we get a clue as to who is the one who needs to be awakened. Which leads us to our second question. Have you fallen asleep? Not in my sermon. I hope that I'm loud enough to keep you awake. But have you fallen asleep? 51 verses 17 through 23. If you fall asleep during a sermon, it's okay. It's not the unpardonable sin. I've done it before. So, 51, 17 through 23. This is the second movement as God speaks to his people. You know this. You've heard this. It's probably something that you've heard a hundred times over. But God loves his people. He loves them. He is concerned for them, but not all is right with them. uh, Returning to the historical situation, historically, Israel and Judah were dominated by foreign armies. They were taken into captivity, and particularly the crown jewel of the nation Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in 586 BC. And perhaps it would have been easy for Israel to conclude things like this. Maybe they would have a religious answer. Well, our God was defeated by their gods. Or maybe they would have a sort of a military answer. Our military resources were insufficient. Or to conclude, our political alliances were wrong-headed. That's why we lost, and that's why we find ourselves in this situation. But God says to them, no, no, no. I'm not going to read the verses. I hope that you picked up on it as I was reading. But he says this. It was I who brought this devastation upon you. It was I who brought destruction upon the nation. And it was I who led Israel into captivity. It was all me. The wrath that you endured was because of my hand. And the cause of that, the reason for that, the explanation for that was spiritual. It was because Israel had departed from God that God brought devastation upon the nation. And if there's anything that God wants Israel to know as a result of their captivity, as an outcome of their exile, is that the nation and life are entirely hopeless if they are left to themselves. Verse 18, in the entire country, in the entire nation, of all the sons were, that were born to all the women of the land, there is not one man found that can lead them out of this mess. Verse 19, there is none to console them. There is none who can comfort them. There is none who can provide hope. Verse 20, the young men, the strong men of the nation, have fainted on every street. They are like an animal that has been trapped in a net. Israel and the church, when they abandon their God, are entirely helpless and hopeless. Now, just to be very clear, when Israel was going through hardship at this point in their history, it was a direct result of their rebellion against the living God. Now, I know that in a room of this size, there would be quite a number of you that would be going through hardships and difficulties and trials. And what I am not saying is that that is a result of personal sin in your life. That you are personally under the wrath of God or something like that. I'm not saying that there's a one-to-one correspondence between God's judgment and the hardships of your life. But what I am saying is this. That for the people of God, when they forget their God, the only way forward, the only way to blessing and life is to return to Him. You know, I was speaking to the youth on Thursday about the incident at GDHS. For those of you who don't know, I, we, it's kind of been mentioned a few times already. But there was a stabbing in one of the classrooms as a result of an altercation that took place between two students. It's a sad thing. It's a horrific thing. It's an awful thing. And our hearts go out, particularly to the victim and his friends and his family. But here's the thing, is that incidents like that should remind us, not that we live in a good and wonderful and nearly perfect world with some, I don't know, rotten eggs such as that guy in in it, But it should remind us that we live in a fallen and a broken world and that we have no power to eliminate the brokenness of this world. In some sense, in some way, we are no better than that man who committed that act. We are a part of the problem because we have rebelled against God and we have personally sinned against Him and sinned against others. This is a marvelous tension that we find in the scriptures then, that the God who brings this destruction upon Israel is the very one who will run to their aid. The very one who pours out his wrath is the one who holds out his hands of redemption. Which really is where he is going here. Yes, it is I who brought upon you this wrath, but it is also I who will remove it. And not only will I remove this wrath from you, but I will place it Upon your enemies, are you awake this morning? To just broaden this out to our context and our situation, are you aware, from the broad teachings of Scripture, that the devastation in this world is a result of sin, which humanity has brought into this world? Do you understand that by forgetting and turning away from God, that we are deserving of the judgment of Almighty God, and that we are a part? of the problem, are you sleeping? But God would also want you to hear and to understand and will return to this, that if you would turn to him, if you would return to him, if you would trust in him, then he will remove the wrath and the judgment that you deserve. Now in hearing this, it's, there's a bit of a mystery that's going on here. I hope it's clear to you And if not to you, then to your spouse. And if not to them, then to your children. I hope it's clear to you that you are a sinner. That you are a broken person. That you make mistakes. That you are selfish. That you don't actually consider God in your day-to-day life. I hope that you can admit that to yourself and to those around you. And most importantly, to God. We are sinners. And so it follows that we deserve judgment. It does not follow, however, that this judgment is simply removed. But that's what Isaiah says. In one minute, he says that you deserve wrath. You've, you've, uh, you've brought wrath upon yourself. And then in the next verse, he says wrath is gone. How is it that the God of Israel can just take away the wrath? How is it that God can treat us as if we had not sinned with love and with favor and with grace instead? How can that happen? I'm not sure what you're doing um, next Sunday around this time. The vast majority of you will probably be bemoaning, bemoaning the fact that you lost an hour of sleep. But here's the thing. The parents of young children will be a bit happier because our kids slept in according to the clock. But, it, but if you want to hear the answer to that question, how can a righteous God forgive righteously? Righteously. Or you want to know, how can I get rid of my guilt? I would encourage you in all seriousness to come back next Sunday. Now, we normally don't have commercial breaks in our sermons, but here I am. We don't normally leave cliffhangers like this, but I I believe that Isaiah 53 is one of the most important chapters in all the Bible and maybe even more germane than that. I actually think that this is what Isaiah is doing. He's dropping clues along the way and he's leading us along the path of the book of Isaiah and particularly I think that he's leading us to the work of the servant in Isaiah chapter 53. So clear your calendar, set your alarm, drink an extra coffee, We'll see you on Sunday. But back to Isaiah 52, because we have to finish 52 before we can get to 53. Question number three Do you live out your identity as God's people? Do you individually, but also together as a whole church, live out your identity as God's people? Remember that Isaiah has addressed the forgetfulness. He has spoken to the spiritual stupor of the people. And now Isaiah calls Israel to stand up and strengthen up. This is 52, verse 1. To remember who they are, to remember their calling, to forget not their identity as the people of the living God, and specifically here to take up priestly garments in the service of God. I think this is important. Because I think sometimes, because of the things that we have done, or because of the things that have been done against us, or because of the things from our past, we render ourselves unclean, unholy, unwanted, unlovely, and unlovable. And when we live in this state of mind, when we feel condemned by God, or rejected by God, or somehow I'm not good enough for God, which in some sense is true, but when we remain there and stay there, it suffocates us spiritually Hear these gospel truths. God says, if you're in Christ, if you're a part of the church, He is for us. God says that He has redeemed us and that He will do it again. God says that he will renew us and restore us. God says that he will make us beautiful and clean. God says that he will clothe us in priestly garments. God says that he will seat us upon a royal throne. God says that he will make us his own. You see, from beginning to end, this entire thing, From the creation of the world, to the calling of Abraham, to the exodus out of Egypt, to the return from exile, to the reestablishment of the people in Jerusalem, to the incarnation of Christmas, to the ministry and preaching of the Messiah, to the miracles and healings of Jesus, to the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord, to the present reign and second coming of the Son, all of it is by Yahweh's initiative. All of it is grounded in his grace and his mercy, his loyal love towards us. And so our job, and we heard it today in the testimonies, I was thinking to myself, I'm like, well, like Bree shared her testimony, Seth has pre- shared her, his testimony. I don't need to preach, but here I am. So, but our job is not, is not to try and save ourselves or to try and fix ourselves or to attempt to heal ourselves. No, our job is to simply live out the identity that God has given to us as His covenant people, as His sons and daughters by adoption. There's an older man by the name of Ray Ortland, and he says this. The first part might surprise you, but just hear him out. The gospel message is not that God loves us. He continues, but that He loves us with a love that cannot be defeated even by our own stupidity. Is this how you view yourself? Is this how we view ourselves? Is this what dominates your thoughts and our thoughts? Is this your boast and your identity? That we belong body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ? This needs to define us. Because if this does not define us, something else will. And that something else which will is going to be hazardous for us. We need the gospel of grace to define who we are as individual Christians and as a corporate church. And let me just say a quick word on this. I think that sometimes we think that the gospel is, okay, I think that I'm bad. But God says that he loves me, so I must not be that bad. No, 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 no. I feel bad. God actually probably thinks that I'm worse than than I think myself to be. And yet, despite all of that, I am still loved by the living God who sent his son into the world to die for my sins and to be raised on the third day so that I can have life and hope forever and a day. You are way worse than you think that you are, but you are way more deeply loved than you think that you are. This is our hope and this is our identity. Not that we made some mistakes and God helps us to clean them up, but that we are deeply sinful, but that we are also deeply loved by the living God who sent his son into the world for us. This is our identity. All of you are aware of the modern marathon. And I'm not certain of the historicity of all the details. I might have gotten my information from Wikipedia and you know how reliable that is. But the name Marathon comes from the story of a man by the name of Phaedipides. He ran from Marathon to Athens to announce the victory of Greece over Persia at the at the Battle of Marathon. That distance was just about 40 kilometers. And pro- on arrival in the city, he announced, Joy to you, we have won. And the story goes that upon speaking the words, joy to you, he breathed his last and died. This gives us a picture of what Isaiah sees in verses 7 through 10. Yahweh is not some grandpa in the sky. And he's not just like your, you know, um, your friend who just tells you, you know, everything that you need and want to hear. He is a warrior. And and he too has been engaged in battle. And like the people and magistrate of Athens, who would have been anxiously waiting word from the battlefield, so the people of God look with eager anticipation. And in the distance, there is a herald running towards us. With beautiful feet, because he carries a beautiful message, he announces to Zion with great news that Yahweh... Has won. He carries the morning newspaper and declares that the war is over and that our God reigns. He brings good news of peace and of salvation. And just so you know, this word peace doesn't mean good feelings and warm sentiments, but rather the absence of war and freedom from threats and danger. The battle is over, and all that is left is to go home. In the ancient world, there were watchmen who would have stood on the city walls, and they were always on the lookout for enemy threats and impending danger. But what they're doing on the walls, according to Isaiah 52 verses 7 through 10, is that they're on the walls singing with joy. There's a reversal of fortunes. Israel has is gone from rags to riches The city has become a squire, and Jerusalem has broken out into the hallelujah chorus, as it were. Why? Because the king has returned to Zion. Yahweh has returned to his rightful throne. And listen, this is important. He returns not to subjugate his unworthy servants under his oppressive thumb, But he returns and he proceeds immediately to comfort his people. All along, this has been the problem with Israel and with the world. That because of our sin and our rebellion... Because of our willing rejection of the true God, because we are sick in our souls, we have driven away the presence of the living God and the promise of the scriptures and the guarantee of the gospel is that God has done, is doing, and will do all that is necessary to restore his presence to his people. Perhaps you're here today and like, this is way more than you bargained for. You're invited by a family member. You came to watch the baptisms. You came because your parents made you come. I want you to know that this message of the gospel, this good news that what God is doing, God is doing what is necessary to restore human beings to relationship with him, it's not just for Israel. Because if that was the case, none of us would be here except for the ethnic Jews in the room. It's not just for people already in the church or who have grown up in the church because then if that's the case, I shouldn't be up here because I never grew up in church. It's not merely for the religious type, whatever that means, because I think there's people in here with tattoos and things like this. <laughs> no, look, look with me to verse 10. It says, it says, Yahweh has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. I was thinking about this in reverse just of myself this morning, but God had to bring me from Japan, relocate the entirety of my family to basically to Banff, Alberta, and it was in the, you know, the, the party, you know, central kind of like young people from all over the world fly in for skiing, but also debauchery. It was in that place that God saved me. When Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world, and then he rose from the dead on the third day, and then he sent messengers into the world to declare the good news of his victory over sin, death, and the devil, he meant for you to receive that invitation. And and here's the invitation, you see, because you cannot come to God on your terms. You cannot... Come to God and say, well, I will believe some of the things that you say, but I'm going to disbelieve some of the things that you say also. No. If you're going to come to God, you must come on his terms, but his arms are open wide to you. He sent his son into the world for people just like you. And this is the invitation. The invitation to be honest with yourself about your own heart and life The invitation to admit that you have miserably failed your creator by forgetting all about him. The invitation to realize that you are fully deserving of the wrath of almighty God. The invitation to believe that this wrath has been removed for all who would believe in Jesus. And the invitation to be redeemed and adopted into the family of God. And maybe let me just say this to you in the simplest of ways, because this was probably a barrier for me as I was first uh, going to church and going to youth group and talking to Christians. I just thought, well, how can this thing for me? Let me just say this in the simplest of ways. The Bible is for you. The God of the Bible is available to you. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is for you this offer of salvation, this redemption of our souls, this hope for our future is for you if you would accept the Lord Jesus into your heart even this morning. Have you forgotten God? Have you fallen asleep? Do you live out your identity as God's people? And I hope that it's becoming clearer and clearer that the one who actually needs to do the waking up is not God, but us. Finally, Are you living as a pilgrim in this world? Are you living as a pilgrim in this world? Verses 52, sorry, verse 11 and 12 of chapter 52, and with this we'll close. The language that Isaiah uses here, it's probably a reference to the return to Jerusalem from Babylon. And it also echoes Israel's escape from Egypt in the Exodus. For us, though, We're not fleeing the Egyptian army, and we're not relocating our families to Israel from Babylon. But the Apostle Paul quotes this very passage in 2 Corinthians 6, which is that well-known passage about not being unequally yoked to unbelievers. So the application here is this, that we would depart from the world, not in the sense of physically leaving it, but in the sense of spiritually separating ourselves from it. That we would be fully convinced that this world is not our home, that our ambition is not to fit in by making crude jokes or to gain credibility by compromising our convictions. No, but to understand and accept that the ways of this culture are entirely antithetical to the God that we worship. And that the Canadian culture has erected its own gods which serve as rivals to the God that we worship. Do not kid yourself, Maple Avenue Baptist Church. The days of gaining credibility in the culture by being a good Christian man or woman are long gone. Just talk to a high schooler who goes to a public school. So come out of Babylon, O Christian. Love not the world or the things in the world. Hate the sins of those around you and hate even more the sin of your own heart. And be ready. Live with eager anticipation, live with sober minds, have your bagpacks because the Lord Jesus is about to accomplish a second exodus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. And God, I think that a message like that would hit each of us in different ways, but I think all of us would be convicted by a message such as this to awaken to spiritual realities. And so I pray and I ask for myself and for my friends, that you would be at work in our hearts by your spirit, even today. Help us not to forget you. Help us to live in light of our new identity that you have given us in the gospel and in your son, the Lord Jesus. And may that be all of our hope and all of our confidence in this world. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.